Good morning, everybody. Let me get my little booster pulpit here. Connie style. Yesterday, Kathy and I were driving back from a funeral, and the highway in front of us, you could see the traffic. It's one of those you come over a hill, and way in the distance, you could see the traffic was just stopped. And oh boy, so, you know, we're on the highway for a while, and finally we get up to where the issue was, and what it was was something on the other side of the highway. It wasn't even us, it was just onlooker slowdown which has always sort of been puzzling to me, you know, why we slow down just to look. And, uh, and there was a big median between. It wasn't like we slowed down for safety or anything. It was just to look. And I think it's because we sort of have an interest in that, don't we? We have a, uh, a fascination in tragedy that's real. Um, you know, shows that are on television that uh, highlight real-life tragedy, for some reason, get more attention than, than uh, the, the fake shows. And which sort of brings us to the news. The news is really a business, isn't it? It's a business called the news. I usually call it the bad news because that's what it is. In fact, I could probably pull my phone out and just go through my news feed and just read you the headlines. They're, they're all going to be bad because that's what gets our attention. We like whether, we're, whether it's onlooker traffic, looking at the life of other people, or whether it's a real-life tragedy, it gets our attention. And the news is business, and business is marketing, and marketing competes with competitors. News competes with other news. And so they're, they're out to get our attention or to get our clicks or whatever. And so typically it's the bad news we're going to see. Uh, no one's real interested in an article or a, uh, a story on the news that says, you know, what do you know? Everything's going fine. Cl- click here. No one clicks on that. Which sort of brings us to the subject of Israel. Whenever Israel is in the news, it's usually only in the news when there's something going on over there, uh, something bad going on over there. Most of the time, when things are just fine, we don't get any news on it. And so the, 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 uh, the implication we get when we look at Israel is that it's a war zone 24-7. I had a friend that came to the United States from China and he and his wife, he said that his wife, they were coming over for seminary, and his wife said, I don't want to go to Dallas for seminary. And he said, well, why not? He said, our children will be shot in school. That was their conception of America, because in China, that's all they heard of America. Our news all over the world is not terribly objective, and... When it comes to Israel, of course, it is uh, very lopsided, and unfortunately, in our country, it seems to be lopsided against Israel as opposed to uh, for them, or at least to give them a fair shake. You know, when uh, President Trump moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which every president since Clinton has vowed to do, and finally Trump did it, I mean, you thought world the world was going to come unplugged, and uh it's amazing just to look at the big picture of history with Israel. 
I mean, the capital, I mean, first of all, Israel is now a nation again, whereas for the last 2,000 years, it hasn't been. And finally, back now in the 40s, it is once again a nation. The capital of Israel is now officially Jerusalem. Well, it always has been, but at least from the United States perspective. It's amazing. I remember one of my professors in seminary, Dr. John Walvoord, used to say this uh, every fall. He said, you can always tell when Thanksgiving's coming because you see the Christmas decorations. <laughs> and he used that as an illustration of prophecy. Because while we don't know exactly when, when the next event is going to occur, we know what the next event is, and we know what happens after that event occurs. And if we start seeing things moving on the stage of God's prophetic timeline that, that mirror what's happening after the next thing that occurs, then we can be sure Christmas is pretty soon on the way. Jesus said a statement that I've always thought was helpful. He, he said a lot of things, but here's, here's one in particular regarding prophecy. He says, I've told you this beforehand so that when it happens, you may believe. One of the benefits of prophecy is that when it comes true, it gives credibility to all the other prophecies that have not yet come true. The Bible's predictions have never been wrong. And if you think about um, some of the predictions, they're pretty amazing. Dr. Charles Ryrie has estimated, I think it's like, I don't know how many billions of Earths it would take with how many billions of people on each Earth to produce uh, one person that could, that could uh, uh, probably should have looked at this a little better, but you get the point. What, what are the odds? <laughs> what are the odds that this could happen to one individual? And yet, when Jesus Christ came, he fulfilled at least in his first coming, just three, in his first coming alone, 300 prophecies from the Old Testament with more to come. The odds of that happening just statistically are impossible unless it's true. So let's look together at the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, in our series, as we go through the books of the Bible, just a single message from the book of the Bible, actually going to look at 2 Thessalonians today. But to sort of set the table, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians once again, because these books really go together. There is a series on television um, I think it's called Life and Edwardian England or something like that, but it's this series where these uh, three modern-day people uh, go to, they're from England, and they go to the country of England, and they basically learn and adapt what it was like to live in Edwardian England for uh, a year. And so the camera follows them around, and, you know, they, they plant things, they, uh, they raise pigs, they, uh, you know, they milk cows. And anyway, it was, it's pretty fascinating for those of us that don't live in agricultural society anymore to look at this and to think, boy, I'm so glad we don't live in an ag agricultural society anymore because that looks like hard work. And one of the things they did was milk a cow. Now, there may be some of you in here, you don't have to raise your hand, Floyd, who grew up milking cows. And so, I mean, you could probably get up here and talk about how much of a challenge it is, beginning with getting up at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. or whatever it is. But anyway, on this show, I watched the process of milking cows just to get cream. I was like, man, you got to really want cream to go through all that. 
I mean, you got to sterilize the stall. You got to make sure you're clean. You got to make sure the animal's clean. Then, then you can start. And then the animal wants to kick you, so you got to kind of warm up to the animal. And then, then you've got to figure out the right way to pull in order to get it to squirt right in the bucket. And in the bucket, you've got to have this little cheesecloth or whatever to catch all the hair that falls in, you know, because you don't want hair in your milk. You know, that's not that great. Anyway, there's this whole process, and that's just to get the milk out of the cow. Then you take the, the, the milk, and you go through the whole process of what it takes to get it to uh, become cream, including all the churning. And I thought, you know, that reminds me of biblical prophecy. Does it sort of remind you of that? It reminds me of biblical prophecy because when we come to the Bible, we want whipped cream. We don't want to churn. We don't want to milk. We want to turn to the book of Proverbs to read one verse and go, ah, got it. Slam the Bible shut. You're good for the day. If all the Bible was Proverbs, wouldn't that be great? We would have a diet of whipped cream. But biblical prophecy is not like Proverbs. You've got to work for it. If you're going to understand it, it takes work. If you're going to get the cream of biblical prophecy, you've got to go through the whole cow milking process before you get anywhere close to cream. So uh, we're going to look at just this part of biblical prophecy today, what's the next event and then the events that follow, particularly as it relates to us as Christians. And in 1 Thessalonians, we left off last time at the end of chapter 4. I think we may have touched into chapter 5. But before we get into 2 Thessalonians, let's just uh, sort of set the stage here. Remember last week we looked in chapter 4 at what we call the rapture, or what uh, theology sort of calls it from the Latin translation of the word there in verse 17, caught up. We here alive and remain will be caught up. The Latin translation of that, that uh, phrase there, caught up, is where we get our word rapture. And it's simply the teaching that when Christ comes and the very next event that could occur in biblical prophecy is the coming of Christ for his church, as we saw last time, to take us, to come get us, to take us, to be with heaven, to be with him in heaven at his Father's house. Now, look at chapter 5, very next verses. Verse 1. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need for any, anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, Peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. So, pause there for just a second and notice some details. Notice Paul says they. He says in verse 2, uh, I'm sorry, verse 3, they are saying, peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them and pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. And that is a direct contrast. The they, they, they is a direct contrast to chapter 4 that says we, we, we. Look in verse cha chapter 4, verses 15. In verse 15, he says, we who are alive and remain. Then in verse 17, we who are alive and remain. End of verse 17, 
we shall always be together with the Lord. Then chapter 5, it's them. So there's a we and there's a them. There, he's making a contrast. There's two different groups of people going on here. All right, it, it gets clearer now in verse 4. Let's keep reading. He says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. He's contrasting the, now the you the, then with the, the them. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. So, he says, God has not destined us for wrath, verse 9. And in context, that wrath is... Uh, also called, in verse 2, the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? If you look at the big picture of, of the Bible, the day of the Lord represents one of two things. It, we could say a day of the Lord with a little d sort of represents any time that God intervenes in history in, 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 in a special way. But the day of the Lord with a big d, which is what we could call this, is the coming day of the Lord. It is where God basically intervenes. It's either through judgment of an unbelieving world or his blessing on his people, or both together. And in this particular case, the day of the Lord is talking about the tribulation or the wrath of God that's coming in the future. And we're told here, we are not of this clan. We are not of this group. They are of it. We are not. Verse 9, he says, God has not destined us for this wrath. We are not going to be in that day of the Lord, that time of judgment that's going to come upon the whole earth. Now, keep your finger here in chapter 5 and flip back to chapter 1. We saw this last time, but let's just reiterate it. Chapter 1, very last verse, chapter 1, verse 10 says that we are to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, he rescues us from the wrath to come. So again, we are not going to experience this wrath. If we were to turn to Revelation, you don't have to turn there, but if we were to turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, we would see the same thing, specifically applied to the church of Philadelphia, where the Lord promises you will not enter the wrath that is going to come upon the whole world. So all of this is basically to say that the uh, the day of the Lord or the, the wrath that's coming on the whole earth is not something that we Christians are going to uh, have to participate in. So now turn to 2 Thessalonians. That's just to set the stage. So Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, licked the stamp, put it in the mailbox. It's, it made its way to Thessalonica. But then word came that even though they'd gotten Paul's letter, they were still confused because... They had gotten other letters as well, or other teachers have slipped in to sort of contradict what Paul was saying. 
So, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look right in verse 1. He says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So, pause there a second. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you have gotten a message from somebody or a letter, as if from us, that the day of the Lord has come. Well, what did he teach them in 1 Thessalonians? You're not going to be in the day of the Lord, the big D. You're not going to be in that. You are going to be taken away before the, the big day of the Lord happens. And yet here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, they are quickly shaken from their composure, meaning from true doctrine, because someone told them, yeah, the day of the Lord's already come. In other words, the trials that you're experiencing now in life, eh, that's because you're in the day of the Lord, or you're in what we call the tribulation. And they were disturbed because clearly Paul had taught them something different. So, Paul's letter, remember, the first time around, says, comfort one another with these words, and yet their hearts were troubled. They were being taught something other than what Paul had taught them. So they needed a fresh reminder. So 2 Thessalonians really has as its purpose to say, let me say it again, and let me say it in a way that you're not going to miss it. And that's helpful for us because we need a fresh reminder not only of the truth, but also we need it said a different way and maybe even a clearer way, and Paul gives us that. So verse 3, let's continue. He says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? I love that, verse 5. It's like, how many times have I heard that, like from a football coach or from some, uh, uh, probably my guitar teachers were the worst, you know. They'd say, you know, I think we talked about this before. You're still doing it. Don't do that anymore. Paul says, look, I've mentioned this to you before, um, not only when I was with you, but also when I wrote you 1 Thessalonians. So he reminds them again, you are not going to be in the day of the Lord because if you were in the day of the Lord, if you were in the tribulation period, you'd be seeing things, very specific things. And he lists a few of them. He says that you would first of all be seeing this man of lawlessness. Who in the world is that? Well, keep your finger here in 2 Thessalonians. Turn back to the book of Daniel. And let's take a peek at this this uh, time. This is not only the, this time, this day of the Lord is actually predicted in the Old Testament very clearly, especially here in Daniel chapter 9. This man of lawlessness we affectionately call the Antichrist, or the book of Revelation calls him the Beast, which is kind of a fun name. In fact, the majority of the book of Revelation focuses on this day of the Lord time. The whole, most of the book of Revelation focuses on how hor- horrible and hard it's going to be 
to be alive here on the earth during the time of the tribulation or this day of the Lord. But Daniel 9, look down at verse 24. Daniel predicts what this, uh, what this time is. Now, as uh, Dr. Toussaint used to say, if you're back in the Hinkley underbrush, is that what he said? If you're, if you're in the back 40 and you're kind of lost, you know, go ahead and put your thinking cap on. If somebody next to you looks like they're nodding off, go ahead and punch them in the shoulder. Just kind of wake them up. And uh, let's look at 924 because this takes a little thinking. And we're all, we're all capable of understanding it. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. Daniel writes, verse 24, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, pause right there. Seventy weeks. If you've got a, a marginal reading for weeks, mine says units of seven. So, seventy units of seven, or seventy sevens. And in the context of Daniel, we understand that this is not just weeks, like there are seven days that we would think about, it, but rather seven years. So we're talking 490 years, 77s, or 490 years are decreed, we're told, for your people and your holy city. So we're talking about the Jews and Jerusalem. This is specifically what this, this, uh, this time is for. So, look down at verse 27. Let's skip a lot of good stuff, but let's look at verse 27. He's speaking of this, um, this Antichrist who is going to make a covenant with Israel. Verse 27, He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, meaning seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Wow, that's like walking into a nice clear stream and uh, two steps in and the, and the water's muddy. And it's like, I can't see the bottom here. It, it is a little fuzzy, isn't it? Well, let's see if we can make a, use a visual here. Those of you who can't see the the lectern are just going to have to imagine that it's here. But let's pretend the lectern represents the day of the Lord. The, the left side of it is when it begins. The right side of it is when it ends. So this represents the seven years of the tribulation that Daniel refers to. And then before this represents the time that we are currently in. So, you know, current time, we don't know how long this is, but this is the time. And so right here, what event would be right here to, be, to begin? The rapture, right. The rapture that we've read in 1 Thessalonians 4 last time begins this, uh, this season. And there may be a probably a little transition setup time here uh, to get that seven years ready. Not sure exactly how long that is, but seven years. And then at the end of that seven years, we're told, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Christ will come to earth and then... After that is a thousand years uh, on, on the earth with Jesus, Jesus reigning. So uh, you've got prior to it with the, the rapture, when Jesus comes down and takes us out. Then you've got the seven years of, of tribulation. And then we're told halfway, I guess I could use this tape here, halfway in between, I'll just let that stick up, is, the, uh, is where the Antichrist 
breaks the treaty, and now you've got three and a half years of literal hell on earth. So we're told he'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week or for seven. So the Antichrist is going to bring the long-awaited peace to Israel. You know, after the latest hubbub over there in Israel, uh, of course, the, the headlines are just dying for something to say at this point because there's not really anything to say. Um, and it's fascinating also, as I was reading through the, the various articles, I saw one, one uh, news station or news people say this about, you know, what was going on, and it was very slanted. I mean, you know, pro this, pro that. And then I saw another one a couple of the, down later that was total opposite about the same events, but their view was complete opposite. And it's like, there is no objectivity here. It's very clear where your emphasis is. But we're told here in the Bible that God has a very clear emphasis as well. And his purpose during this time is to reveal, or the Scripture reveals what's going to happen during this time, as the Antichrist is going to make peace in the Middle East. I saw a, a, a quote by our president, something, it's like, he said something like, uh, I really believe that finally, you know, we'll, we'll be able to have peace over there. Or he said something to that effect. I just thought, wow, you know, that's, uh, that's probably not really going to happen. In fact, the Bible sort of says it's not going to happen until this Antichrist comes and does what no one has been able to do. The word anti, Antichrist, and the anti, that little prefix, can either mean opposite or it could mean substitute. The idea is that the Antichrist is opposite of Christ. He is the total antithesis, anti, of what Christ is, but he also is sort of a substitute, substitute Messiah. And many will look to this Antichrist as doing what they had hoped the Messiah would do. He is going to bring peace in the Middle East. In fact, it says that here in uh, verse 27, on the wing that he will on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate. The wing meaning the wing of the temple. Um, there will be a temple rebuilt. The Dome of the Rock is currently on the Temple Mount. We've all seen the pictures in the newsreel. And uh, every time I see the Dome of the Rock, it reminds me of golf. Just sort of picture the Dome of the Rock as this golf ball. It's not really a, a golf ball in the sense, but it, it, it sort of is like a golf marker, a golf ball marker. You know what a golf marker is, those of you who play golf? I actually had to look it up. I want to make sure I was right on this. But you know when a, a golfer, you know, misses and the, real close to the, they're on the green and they miss and, and everyone's going to be firing their balls real close together. And so you pick your ball up and you put a marker down instead. You know, they reach and they pull this little quarter looking thing down. And uh, that's where my ball goes when I come back to play. But for now, the marker stays there so that you don't, you know, knock my ball out of the way. To me, the Dome of the Rock is like a marker. It's just sort of marking the spot and saving the spot. But when it's time to play again, the Lord knows right where to put it. The Lord knows right where to put that temple. Because the Dome of the Rock really is probably over the spot where the, uh, the temple was. Archaeology definitely confirms that. So if you go to Jerusalem today, so turn back to 2 Thessalonians 2. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can go in the Jewish quarter 
to a museum called the, uh, the, the Temple Institute. It's an interesting museum where the, a group of people have gathered um, and collected a bunch of furniture that is ready for the next temple. They've got the menorah. It's big. It's, somebody donated I don't know how many millions of dollars to, uh, to build this menorah. It's huge. I mean, it's, it, it's as tall as the ceiling here, and it's massive. And they've got it encased in bulletproof glass and uh, cameras all around. It's just it's beautiful. But they have all the, te- all the furniture ready for the next temple. They're just ready for the AOK to build it. They're ready to go. The sad thing, though, to me, is they're prepping for the, for the temple that the Antichrist is going to build. That's the sad thing. But Jesus will take care of that when he all comes back. Probably no charge. <laughs> Second Thessalonians 2, remember this world ruler is going to create peace in the Middle East. He is going to be the Time Magazine's man of the year. He's going to be the Nobel Peace Prize winner. The world is going to sing his praises because finally he's been able to do what no one else has been able to do. But then, halfway through, <laughs> gotcha. He says, I've changed my view here. The, the new policy is uh, this, uh, I'm going to set up this idol or this uh, little statue or whatever it's going to be, and uh, you need to worship me. That's the way this is going to roll. And if you don't worship me, well, then you get to die. Nice. This is what's going to happen the second part of the tribulation. So we're in 2 Thessalonians 2. Let's read verse 4 and 5 again. And now that we sort of have a, a context. How did I get in the book of John? That is not where I need to be. Okay, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. This man opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Halfway through, he turns and he becomes this enemy of Israel instead of the ally of Israel. I think we've talked about this before, but I love the historical parallel in World War II, or just prior to World War II, actually. Remember, Neville Chamberlain went over to uh, Germany and gave a bunch of Czechoslovakia's land and industry to Hitler as a, as a hope, hopes to appeasing him and to creating what Chamberlain called peace in our time. Well, 11 months later, Hitler breaks his word, rolls into Poland, invades, and World War II begins. And, of course, Chamberlain sort of slinks out of uh, his office in shame because he was part of the process that ended up getting betrayed by the one that they trusted. Very similar. In a similar way, Daniel tells us, in fact, Paul tells us, in fact, Jesus and John tell us that the Antichrist, after three and a half years of peace with Israel, is going to stop the Jews' sacrifices in the temple, set up his own image on a wing of the temple, which is called the abomination of desolation. Abomination meaning the image, desolation meaning what it does. It desolates the temple. And he requires himself to be the object of worship. Paul says, you know you're not in the tribulation because that ain't happening yet. If you were in the tribulation, you'd be seeing this happening. He says, you don't see it, so you know you're not there. Keep going. Verse 6. He says, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. 
for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. You English majors probably see a contradiction here, and you're very astute if you do. Verse 6, what restrains him? Verse 7, who restrains? And then he is taken out of the way. So is it what or is it who? Yes, because it's sort of an odd, it's, it's, it's an odd answer. Who is this? What is this that restrains? Well, so there's really two options. One says it's government that restrains him, which isn't a really good option because the government's still going to be around. In fact, the Antichrist is going to be ruling the government. Not a lot of restraint there. It, it, it's more likely the Spirit of God. And the reason is because, remember what happens when the day of the Lord begins, the church is taken away. Who resides in the church? The Holy Spirit. Who began the age of the church? The Holy Spirit. So the coming of the Holy Spirit and the leaving of the Holy Spirit begins and ends the age of the church and thus allows God to deal directly once again with Israel. Plus, even grammatically, the, the word in Greek, spirit, is neuter. And so to have a pronoun that matches with it would be what, not who. But then in the next verse, he's also a person. And so Paul refers to him as he or who. So it's both and, which sort of explains the unusual uh, translation. I don't know what your translation says, but hopefully it's as weird as mine is. But, but, I, but that solution is the one that really makes the most sense. The Holy Spirit is the one who uh, restrains him. And the power of God is amazing. I mean, you look at the world today. Sometimes when I look at people who are mentally uh, really off, like you'll be, you'll be, I remember when we, Kathy and I were in California not too long ago. Uh, you don't have to go to California to see it, but you, you could easily go to California and see it. No, but we were there and just driving down the street, and there was this individual walking down the street that was clearly bothered. And I just looked at this guy and thought, you know, if Satan had his way, every one of us would be like that. He would. You look at the, uh, the possession in the New Testament and these people who are ravaged by demons. If God did not restrain, we would all be like that. When you see demons having their way with humanity, you see those kind of effects. So you look at our world today. The reason that we're all clothed and in our right mind is not because of us. It's because of the power of the Spirit of God at work in this world, restraining the power of Satan. Because if Satan had his way, we would all look like that guy shuffling down the street. We would all be affected powerfully by demons. Which is why when you see the Spirit of God removed from the indwelling ministry that he currently has within the church, uh, the world as we know it in the book of Revelation turns into a, a horrible place. As we saw last week, there's a reason the church is taken out of the world, because Revelation reveals that the day of the Lord is going to be a time of unprecedented wrath. Well, it's taken a long time to get to this, but here's the first principle from our text today, and it's good news. It's simply this. Believers will not experience God's wrath, but God's presence. Will not experience God's wrath, but God's presence. When Christ introduced to the, his disciples the good news of the rapture, 
Um, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to take you. I'm going to come back and take you to be there. The expectation that we have as Christians is not to go through these things. Now, we don't turn there, but in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says a very similar thing. Jesus says that, um, that the, uh, the Antichrist is basically going to do what we've just read. And at the beginning of the tribulation, there's going to be literal hell on earth. Because God's also, during the tribulation time, going to convert many people to come to know him. Uh, our Bibles aren't raptured. How do people come to know the Lord during the, during the tribulation time if there's none of us here to share? I mean, because at the point that the tribulation begins, there's not a Christian one on the earth. We're all with the Lord in glory. So how does anybody ever come to know the Lord? Because our Bibles aren't raptured. And someone's going to get around to reading it, and the Lord is going to convert people even during that time. Listen to uh, Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. Just listen. John writes, The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not repent of their murders or sorceries or immorality or thefts. Revelation 16.9 says, The men were scorched with fierce heat, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. You see, one of the reasons for this unprecedented wrath on the, on the earth is not just because God's mad and finally he gets to vent. He's doing it so that people will repent. If you're not going to repent because, you know, the word is preached or because of what's going on currently now in the age of the church, then maybe you'll repent if it gets real hot. Maybe you'll repent if a third of the vegetation on the world in the world is burnt up. And yet we're told here that even in spite of that, not, not everyone's going to do it, but some will. What's true then is also true now is that trials can humble us or harden us. Think about that. When you go through a trial, you've got one or two options. You can allow it to humble you, or you can allow it to harden you. And that's really the only two options we have in a trial. It can humble you, or it can harden you. Um, I don't know where you are right now, but you're going through a trial, because we all are. There's always something to trust God for. Let me just challenge you. When you lay that before the Lord today or tomorrow or whenever it is you spend time with Him, say, Lord, don't let me resist this. Let me properly humble myself before you. Show me the way of repentance. Show me the way of growth so that uh, I don't have to experience this again. For those in the tribulation, for the most part, they resisted God. One of the worst things I think the Lord can allow in our lives is that everything go great, because then we don't need the Lord. But we know when things are going tough that uh, we clearly need him. It draws us to Christ in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. We are so much more spiritual when we're struggling than we are when we are prosperous. We hate that, don't we? But in hindsight, we love that. We can look back at the trials of our lives and say, thank you, God, for taking me through that, and please don't ever take me through that again. <laughs> but what a blessing those trials are, because they give us insight into our hearts, into life, into the Scripture that we wouldn't have otherwise. 
So humble, not harden, is our challenge in trials. Here's the second principle. Because time could be short, we should eagerly accept and proclaim the Lord Jesus. Because time could be short, we should eagerly accept and proclaim the Lord Jesus. Could be short. Christ could come today, which means starting next week, you know, could be the tribulation, depending on how long that transition is into that seven years. But the fact is, it could be. It could start today. And so we should eagerly, first of all, accept Christ and then proclaim Christ. If you have not yet accepted Christ, if, you've, if, if for some reason you have lived this long in life thinking that your good deeds are going to get you to glory, then um, look closer at what the Bible says. Christ died for your sins. You just simply believe in him and your sins are paid for. And then that good news should be something that's proclaimed. Like I said, Kathy and I yesterday came back from a funeral and I was thrilled that at the funeral, this young pastor, I mean, the guy was in his 20s. I remember when I was in my 20s, not thinking I was so young, but now he's young. (laughs) Young pastor up there, you know, talking about what a great life this lady lived. And then this pastor shared the gospel. I mean, it was simple. It was clear. I wanted to stand up and shout. In fact, afterwards, I met him privately. I pulled him aside privately, and I just thanked him. Thank you for sharing the gospel. That was so clear. And while you were sharing, I was praying that people would believe. I love that, that he did that. We should eagerly accept and proclaim the Lord Jesus, because time is short. Never before in world history has the stage been so clearly set for the time of the tribulation. Let me say it another way. Never in world history have we seen so many Christmas decorations getting ready for Thanksgiving. We got Christmas decorations everywhere in this world. Just think about the fact that Israel is once again a, a nation. That's like big deal. Most of us live most of our lives with Israel as a nation. No big deal. But you look at world history, that is a big deal. It has been 2,000 years since Israel has had a homeland. And for the Jews to be now continuing to flock back to Israel, the stage is definitely being set. Israel is front-page news. I mean, this is potentially end-times events. We've been in end-times since first century, but uh, for things to be wrapping up, it's, it's pretty exciting. Well, look at 2 Thessalonians 2, down in verse 8, and let's continue. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. In other words, at the second coming, Jesus is going to take care of this beast, this Antichrist. Verse 9, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. In other words, Paul says, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, they will perish. Um, We think it's bad today in our society, but boy, it's going to be really bad during that time. For the thousands of years that humanity has existed, we have been an agricultural society. 
Um, now we've got you know shows on television that show us what agricultural society is like because we don't know what it is. We want milk. We want cream. We go to the grocery store. We don't have to go through the whole process of uh, of uh, milking a cow and churning the stuff and all that. Thankfully. But we now also have, for the first time in history, a world empire is possible. For the first time. We have immediate worldwide communication. We have rapid transportation. We have computers that could easily handle the world's economy from a desktop. Never before in history has mankind had the stage set so that world domination could occur on a global scale. Israel is in the headlines. The Christmas decorations are here. Paul finishes up this chapter in verse 13 through the end. He says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. In other words, he says, you know, it's good news. Give thanks to God because he's going to rescue us from this wrath, and he promises us that glory's coming. And then he says, stand firm. If you hear something that's other than what I've just told you now for, what is this, the third time, don't, don't be swayed. Stand firm in the truth. He challenges them to be in the word. He says, cling to the word. Verse 15, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. The letter from us is the Bible, the scriptures. Cling to the scriptures. And don't listen to those who contradict. Well, Paul ends here with a benediction, uh, sort of a blessing, verse 16 and 17. And this is where we can end as well. So let's, let me read these verses and then we'll go straight to prayer. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Our Father, we do give you thanks today because you, in many ways, have given us the difficult, you've explained the difficult truths of prophecy in terms that we can understand. Yes, it took a little milking, it took a little churning, it took a little work to, uh, to glean all this, but the truth is there. Christ is coming. He is coming to take us to glory. He's coming to take us out of the way before the day of the Lord occurs on this earth, during which time you will begin to deal again with Israel on a direct basis. And uh, the world will see a hell on earth like it's never known. Many will come to know you, many will not. And then Christ comes again to fulfill all the promises and covenants to Israel. And for a thousand years, reigns on the earth, and us, as a privilege, get to reign with him. Father, for any who do not yet know the Lord Jesus, we ask that the simple truth of the gospel message, that Christ died for them, 
to pay for their sin, rose again to show that it was paid for, that this truth would be compelling and convicting and then ultimately comforting as they believe. And it's a comfort to us who do believe, Lord, because it is our hope that just as Christ saved us from our sin, so he's also going to save us, save us from wrath, that we do not have to expect the tribulation of this world, but we can expect instead the hope of glory, our blessed hope that we will be with the Lord forever. Thank you for revealing us the future, that we don't have to wonder about every opinion that we read in the news or every opinion that we read in some book that proclaims to have a word from God. We have the word from God in the scriptures, and the scriptures are clear. Thank you for this truth, and we cling to it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.